Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, speak to us today through the power of your word and of your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name that you would give us understanding, that you'd give us insight, and that you'd give us clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we get into this, I want to take us back just for a moment. I want to take us back to the first chapter of Acts because there's a piece that is very important for us to understand if we're going to understand what's happened here in the third and the fourth chapter of Acts. Now, Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives. He's about to ascend into heaven before the very eyes of his disciples, but he has some things to say to them first. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, uh, and he says, you're going to be baptized, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And the disciples say to him, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is in a very important question. Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, when they ask the Lord this question, what they're actually alluding to is the fact that all 12 of the disciples had an agenda. Even now, they still had an agenda. From the moment they began to follow Jesus, they had an agenda. And they had been waiting for three years for Jesus to fulfill their agenda. They experienced great disappointment, great disillusionment, great discouragement on many occasions simply because Jesus had not fulfilled their agenda. You see, at first they thought Jesus was a rabbi and they followed him because all of the young men in Israel had it as their heart's desire to one day become the disciples of a rabbi. The problem with the 12 disciples that Jesus chose was that they had all been rejected by the great rabbis of Israel. And now suddenly this one rabbi, Jesus, is coming to them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, inviting them to come and follow him, qualifying them when they were not qualified in themselves, inviting them to embark on a journey called discipleship with him. And in ancient Israel, discipleship was the process by which a student became like his teacher in every way. And so he was inviting them into a process by which they would be conformed to his image, by which his mind would become their mind, by which his thoughts would become their thoughts, by which his truth would become their truth, and his lifestyle would become their lifestyle. But somewhere along the way, they discovered the fact that he was more than a rabbi. Actually, very quickly, they discovered that he was more than a rabbi. When they began to see him work miracles, he would cast out demons and heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and raise the dead. They began to realize that the other rabbis in Israel were not doing these things. Our, our, our rabbi is more than just a rabbi. We don't know what he is yet, but we know that he's more than just a rabbi. There's a scene where... They're on a boat on the Sea of Galilee with him, and the storm rages, and it looks like their, their boat is going to be swamped by the storm, but Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion, and they come and wake him up and say, Teacher, don't you care that we perish? And he gets up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves and says, Peace be still, and there's a great calm. And they look at each other and say, Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They still hadn't fully discovered who he was. They're like, he's more than a rabbi, but we're not quite sure what he is yet. We're not quite sure who he is yet, but we know he's more than we thought he was. We know that he's more than we understood him to be. Who is this man? 
Finally, in Matthew 16, he takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and says, who do men say that I am? What's the popular understanding out there about who I am, about my identity? And they start spouting out what they read in the newspaper. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're, you're the prophet. Some say you're this person. You're Jeremiah. Some say you're this person. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is literally saying the word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Mashiach, which means Messiah. Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're more than just a rabbi. You are the Messiah. Now, you must understand who the Messiah was. In the mind of ancient Israel, the Messiah was the son of David, the long-awaited son of David, who was going to restore the kingdom of Israel who was going to drive out the Roman occupation, who was going to sit on David's throne as king of Israel, and he was going to bring about all of the promises that the prophets of old spoke of. All of the promises of the restoration of the Davidic kingdom would be brought about by the Messiah, and they had envisioned the Messiah to be a political, military hero who would raise up an army, drive out the Romans, restore the kingdom of Israel, and sit on David's throne. And the moment the disciples realized that Jesus is the Messiah, they got real excited. Because we're not just students of a great rabbi. We are disciples of the Messiah, the rabbi, the great rabbi, the son of David, the conquering king. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. All these things that have been written about him by the prophets of old. And we are his closest companions. We are his most trusted associates. And they had all these visions of grandeur. We are rolling with the rabbi. We are rolling with the Messiah. And if we are rolling with the Messiah, when he sits on David's throne, he's going to erect 12 thrones around him for us. We're going to be the highest ranking rulers in all of Israel. And they looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law that had oppressed them, that had looked down on them. They were thinking about the rabbis that rejected them and said, you're not smart enough to be my disciple. And they were envisioning what they were going to do to those rabbis who rejected them once they got to sit on their throne around Jesus. I read, I read a report the other day, I read an article the other day that this man had won the $125 million Powerball lottery or whatever. And the first thing he did was he went to the office and quit his job. And then he ordered 20,000 tons of manure to be dumped on his boss's lawn. Because for 10 years, his boss had mistreated him. And he had to take it because he needed the money. But now he was rich. And, and his boss woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning to the sound of dozens of dump trucks that were dumping manure on his lawn. And 20,000 tons of manure piled up on his lawn. And the man stood across the street and laughed all the way. And, and even when the police came, he came over and confessed, I did it. It was me. And they arrested him and took him to jail. And he laughed all the way to jail. And he said, wait till I get out. I got some more people to, you know, to fix. <laughs> 
This is kind of how the disciples are thinking. They're like, all the people who have oppressed us, all the people who have looked down, I'm about to be your boss. We're, we're about to floss. <laughs> it's about to be on drip. <laughs> this is what they're thinking. We're going to sit on 12 thrones. And they kept, and they, but instead, he's just walking around Judea, sitting on the side of mountains, teaching, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I'm sorry I hear it with a British accent because I've seen too many Jesus movies. <laughs> we got to look at it in the original English of the text. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> a few of you got that. <laughs> and so they're waiting. And so one day, Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives and he takes two of his disciples and he says, go up the hill and get that donkey. You know that story, right? He told him to steal that donkey. Go up around the corner, you're going to find a donkey tied to a post, untie it and bring it to me. And if anybody asks, hey man, why are you taking my donkey? Just tell them, the Lord has need of it. And they were like, oh snap, it starts now. It's about to go down. This is what we've been waiting for. And they get the donkey and they're like, hey man, why are you taking my donkey? They said, the Lord, the Messiah has need of it. Now what? He was like, oh, please take the donkey. Go ahead. They were like, yeah, that's what I thought. And they take the donkey and they go back to the Lord and they put him on the donkey. And this was the most exciting moment for the disciples because they're thinking, this is it, man. This is it. This is Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9, right? This is it, right? Behold, behold, your king cometh gentle and riding on the foal of a donkey. The king is coming, riding on the foal of a donkey. You're like, where are we going? And he's like, we're going to Jerusalem. And the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. He's going to do it. Yes. Yes. They're so excited. We're going to Jerusalem. They're jumping up and down and the disciples are laying their coats on the road and they're screaming. And then the whole crowd starts screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. What they're literally saying is do it now, do it now. And the disciples are thinking he's going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to go to the temple. He's going to stand on the steps of the temple and make a grand announcement. You've been waiting for the Messiah to come. And I'm here to tell you ha, that I ha, am the Messiah ha, whom you've been waiting for. Ha. I want you to make me a throne of gold ha, and set it right here. And I want 12 more thrones ha, for these disciples of mine. The disciples are thinking, this is it. Yeah. And all of the people are like, yes, this is it. And they're going into Jerusalem. And the Pharisees are like, tell your disciples to stop screaming. And Jesus says, if they hold their peace, even the very rocks are going to cry out. And the disciples are like, yeah, take that. Wait till I sit on my throne. I'm about to demote you. You ain't even a Pharisee anymore. You think you're on the Sanhedrin? You're going to be the janitor of the temple when I get, as soon as I get my position. And instead, he goes to the temple and makes a whip. They get to the temple and he sits down. He's like, bring me some nylon cords. They're like, for what? So you'll see. Three of them. And he's sitting there braiding. Like, what are you doing? You'll see. He makes a whip and goes in and starts beating the money changers. <laughs> like, what are you, what is he, what is he doing? What make the announcement? He's like, hold on a second. <laughs> It is said that my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. I was like, I can see my daddy. You know what I mean? Like back with the belt days, back in those days, right? And, uh, and so 
He drives out the money changers and they're like, okay, got that done. Now make the announcement. Make the announcement. And instead, he goes into the temple and he just starts healing the sick. And they're like, yeah, you've done that already. We've seen you. We've watched you do that for three years. Make the announcement. And then he just starts teaching the people. And the disciples are like, what are you doing? And then he goes, he goes, okay, guys, it's over. Let's go. Where are we going? We're going back to the Mount of Olives. Why? And then he just bounces and leaves. And all week long, the disciples are like, what's going on? And then at the end of that week, he takes them into the upper room. He celebrates the Passover feast with them, and he takes a piece of bread and breaks it and goes, this is my body, which is broken for you. What are you talking about? Your body broken? What? what the heck is going on? He's like, just take this and eat this. It's for you. And then he takes the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the redemption of many. Just drink this. You're going to do this in remembrance of me. They are so confused. They're like, Jesus has lost his mind. And after the feast is over, and then Judas goes out, and then Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, come with me for a walk, takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he says, why don't you guys just kneel here at this rock and pray? He says, my spirit's in agony right now. They're like, agony? What is he talking about? And then Jesus goes to another rock, and he's crying, and his, his sweat is like great drops of blood. The three disciples are so confused that they just fall asleep. And Jesus has to wake him up. Can't you watch with me this one hour? And then he's killed. He's nailed to a cross. We don't understand how devastating of a moment that was for the disciples. Because they had seen a history in Israel, especially over the previous 400 years, in which man after man after man rose up and claimed to be the Messiah and even stirred everybody up and made people think he was the Messiah, but then he was killed, and as soon as he was killed, his movement was over. And so now Jesus is killed, and the disciples are thinking, he's just like all of these other guys that caused us to hope but then dashed our fear, our, our, our hopes to the ground. And then three days later, the resurrection happens. And he interrupts their disillusionment with news of his resurrection. And for 40 days, he walks with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, their hopes start coming alive again. But instead, they don't know how to reframe their hopes yet. They don't realize that what he's actually doing is destroying their agenda and giving them his agenda. And so now here we are back at Acts chapter 1 in his last few minutes with them before he's taken up into heaven before their eyes. And they say to him, Lord, now are you going to do it? At this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to make that announcement now? Are you going to do that thing that I've been hoping you'd do all this time? Don't you realize the, the whole reason why we're following you is because we thought you would do this thing? That if you were to tell us from the beginning, I'll never do this thing. That we probably would have never followed you in the first place. At this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus does not say yes, but he also does not say no. He does not say no, I'm never going to do that. You got that wrong. But he also doesn't say, yeah, I'm about to do that right now. Instead, he says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. It's none of your business. 
And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set in his own power. But, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you shall be my witnesses, I'm sorry, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. He says, that, what, that was your old agenda, that's the wrong agenda. Now I'm going to reframe your agenda for you. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has set in his own power. Everything that you want God to do on your behalf is none of your business. If you ever ask God, when are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? God, when? God, how long? God, when? This is not for you to know. That's not your business. When are you going to heal my body? I've been praying for so many years. It's not for you to know. That's none of your business. Lord, when are you going to give me a husband? That's not for you to know. I've never heard of God giving anybody a specific answer on that question in three years. It's not for you to know. That's, that shouldn't be your concern. That's not your agenda. That's not what you're supposed to focus your mind on. Remember Jesus said before in Matthew chapter 6, don't worry saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? That's what the Gentiles are seeking. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you as well. For which one of you by worrying can add a single day to his life? Oh, you of little faith? Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin, but yet I say to you that Solomon in all, of his wisdom, in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these. If this is how the Lord clothes the lilies of the field which are here today and tomorrow are thrown into the oven, how much more will the Lord adorn you, O you of little faith? Therefore give no thought to tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough cares of its own. <laughs> he says, get your agenda in the right place. Jesus says your agenda is receiving power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that you can become my witnesses. He says if you focus your mind and heart on end time eschatological things, when is God going to do this? When's God going to do that? Maybe this means that this has happened and maybe this means the Antichrist is coming. Maybe this means that. Or if you're focusing your mind on what you want God to do in your life, maybe I'm going to get my raise now and maybe I'm getting a new job now and, and you're spinning your wheels because you're so focused on your agenda of what it is you want God to do. And Jesus says, no, shift your agenda. You shall receive power. That is the promise. That is the priority that should set your agenda for the way you live your life, your, uh, your agenda is every, every day when I wake up in the morning, God has a fresh outpouring of power yes. from the Holy Spirit yes. for my life. Yes. You shall receive power, and then he describes what the power is for. Because all of us think that when God gives us power, it's the power to meet our own needs and fulfill our own desires. He says, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the word witness there actually has to do with a witness in a court of law. And what is the job of a witness? To say, I saw this and I heard this. That's all a witness does. A witness simply says, this is what I saw and this is what I heard. 
A witness who has not seen anything or heard anything is useless. If you get a witness up on the stand and the judge is like, so did you see the incident? Nah, I wasn't even there. <laughs> Were you on the phone? Did you hear it? Nope. So why are you here? I don't know. I just you know, thought I'm supposed to be a witness. A lot of Christians say things like, I want to learn how to tell people about Jesus, but I need more training. No, you don't. You just need to tell them what God has done in your life. If Jesus has done anything in your life, that makes you a witness. But if Jesus has not done anything in your life, you've got nothing to bear witness to. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then we get to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit falls. A crowd gathers from every nation under heaven. And then Peter, all of a sudden, he gets prompted by the Holy Spirit. It's time for you to be a witness. So Peter stands up to preach. Didn't have time to prepare that sermon. Didn't have 40 hours that week to do exegesis and, and to do historical background and, and work studies and the Hebrew and the Greek. and No, on the spot. It's time for you to be a witness. Yes. And what does he do? He stands up and bears witness to the resurrection and glory of Jesus. And at the end of his testimony, 3,000 people are added to the church that day because they receive the presence and power of God. They're transformed by the presence and power of God. Now, what happens by the end of Acts chapter 2 is that not only is the church born, but a normative pattern is established for how the church operates. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. What that actually looked like was there were two types of meetings that the members of the early church attended. The first type were the large group meetings. Every morning at 9 a.m. and every evening at 3 p.m. They went to church twice a day for the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. And in the morning, they would, go, they would gather with all Israel at the temple as the priest would lay the sacrifice on the altar, and they would pray from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. There would be this hour of prayer while the sacrifice is being laid on the altar. And all of Israel is praying to God to roll back the sins of the people and to atone for the sins of the people because of the sacrifice, the morning sacrifice that's being laid on the altar. But this group of disciples of Jesus Christ is not praying for forgiveness of sins because of the animal sacrifice, but they look at the animal sacrifice and they say that's only a type and a shadow of the real sacrifice and it was Jesus and they're thanking God for the sacrifice of his son Jesus and then after that after that sacrifice was done then they would gather with the church there in the temple courts and one of the apostles would teach and then after the service was over then they would gather from house to house in their small group meetings and they would talk about what they learned in the, in the teaching of the apostles that day. And they would fellowship with one another. And the fellowship was actually joint ownership of the truth that they had acquired through the teaching of the apostles. They would share with one another. They would make sure everybody understood what was taught. And then they would be back at the temple at 3 p.m. for the evening sacrifice. And then there'd be another hour of teaching from the apostles after the evening sacrifice. And then they would go gather in another home for another small group meeting, they had two large group meetings and two small group meetings every day. And that was the normative pattern of the early church. Okay? Now, what happens in Acts chapter 3 
is one of those days we don't know how much time passed between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. But one of those days, in the course of simply living out this pattern, what happens is that there's a disruption. Something transpires to disrupt the pattern, and every time there's a disruption in the book of Acts to the daily life of the early church, that disruption seems to be cataclysmic, but it actually turns out for the good of the church. As Peter and John are on their way to the temple for the evening sacrifice at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They're entering in through the gate beautiful. There's this man who was over 40 years of age and had never walked before. He was lame from his mother's womb. And he's laid at the gate of the temple. Now you can imagine there's all kinds of blind and lame and sick people and poor people outside of the temple that are begging people for money as they enter into the temple. So this is not new. Matter of fact, Jesus had probably walked past this lame man, the same man, many times. I can see Jesus walking by and looking at him and just smiling inside, thinking, one day you're going to be the spark of a revival. The delay in the healing of this man was actually a setup for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God delays the answering of your prayer because of what the answering of your prayer is going to do for the body of Christ and in the earth at a specific moment and at a specific time. And as Peter and John are entering, the man looks at them, and the scripture says he fixed his eyes on them and asked them for alms. You got five dollars I can borrow? And Peter stops in his tracks, and he looks at the man and says, look at us. He looks at the guy and goes, look, look at us. Why does Peter do that? The Holy Spirit arrested his heart. He's discerning in the spirit. God's getting ready to do something. And he stops and he looks at the man. He's like, Lord, am I hearing what I think I'm hearing? Are you about to do what I think you're going to do? I want us to understand this, that this miracle was initiated by the prompting of the spirit of God. It was not prompted by Peter's faith. We got to get this in our heart and mind because there's so much teaching out there about miracles and it's all about you prompting God by your faith to do something that he never intended to do. It's like, if you believe enough, I even heard a teaching that said, because Peter said, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, because he used all three of those words, that's why the miracle happened. Had he just said Jesus, the miracle would have not happened. As if God doesn't know which Jesus you're talking about. <laughs> like, in the name of Jesus, and God's like, which Jesus? I don't know what Jesus you're talking about. There's many Jesuses out there. <laughs> don't make no sense. No, this miracle didn't happen because Peter had faith. This miracle happened because it was God's divine time to do something yeah. specific in this moment. Yes. Peter is prompted by the Spirit, and he stops, and he looks at the guy and says, look at us. And the guy looks at them, and it says the man looked at them expecting to receive something. God's timing was now coupled by a posture of receptiveness in the heart and mind of the man. I think often God is getting ready to do something, but we don't actually have a heart to receive it. Yeah. And so God says, well, I'll wait. Yeah. But the man actually had a heart to receive what God wanted to do for him in that moment. Right. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none. Silver and gold I do not have, which actually was not correct. He actually had a lot of silver and gold. Because we're going to find out later that the normal pattern of the church was the people would throw money down at the feet of the apostles. That's how they took the offering. 
the apostles would teach, and people would throw money down at their feet spontaneously. And not just like $10, not even just a tithe. They would like sell houses and bring in a wheelbarrow of money and dump it down at the feet. Wow. There was a lot of silver and gold. What he meant was, silver and gold have I none for you. you got to get that in your heart and mind because otherwise you might think it's the will of God for you to give money to every homeless person out there that's asking you for a handout, and that's not the way it works. Peter was discerning in the moment what the Holy Spirit was asking him to give the man, and what he discerned was, God ain't telling me to give you no silver and gold. But what I have for you, I give unto you. I've got something for you that's actually better than silver and gold. Oh, yeah? What's that? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And the scripture says, immediately the man's bones and ankles were strengthened, and he jumped up on his feet. And he began running and jumping. Put that verse up on the screen, can you? That's in Acts chapter 3, somewhere in those first few verses. I want you to see this. What verse is it? Somebody tell me. Verse 7. Put, put, put verse 7 and following up on the screen. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Go on to the next verse. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple. The first thing he wanted to do when he got healed was enter the temple. Why? Because the blind, sick, lame, and infirm were not allowed in the temple. His affliction kept him separated from the presence of God. And when he got healed in his mind and heart, the first thing he wanted to see was what's inside the temple. He had never been in there. He had only heard about what goes on in there. His first priority was not to run downtown and get himself a job. His first priority was not to run down to the club and try to find himself a wife. His first priority was to run into the temple and find the presence of God. The first thing, see, we got to get it in our hearts and minds that when God heals you, the priority, the reason God heals you is to empower you to draw closer to him. It's to give you the power. Listen, I'll never forget, I was, I was getting ready to preach this conference and I was sitting next to the pastor's son and the pastor's son was a, a paraplegic, uh, he, no, he was not paraplegic. He had a cerebral palsy and so he could not stand on his own. And he was, they, they carried him in and they laid him in the seat next to me. And in the middle of worship, he whispered in my, he tapped me on the shoulder and whispered in my ear. And he said, if my legs worked right now, I would be running and jumping all over this place. He said, the presence of God is so strong in this place. I wish my legs worked right now because I would be running and jumping and shouting all over this place right now. Literally, he's saying, if I had the strength, I would give God more glory. If I was healed, I would give God more praise. I would use the strength that God gave me to give God more glory. Listen, if you need healing in your body, if you need healing in your mind, if you need healing in your family, if you need God to do anything, you need to set your heart and mind on using the strength that comes from that healing to bring greater glory to the name of Jesus. The first place he ran was into the presence of God. That was his priority. Isn't that powerful? And so now a crowd is gathering. A crowd is gathering. 
All the people at the temple, all the worshipers that were there for the evening sacrifice, a crowd is gathering, and everybody's gathering around, and the people are looking at the man, and they'd be like, isn't that the man who's been out there at the gate for the last 40 years? That man who's never walked before? And some people were probably like, I bet he was faking all these years. (laughs) Because we've seen that. You've seen that, right? I remember one time I was driving up, I was driving down, no, I'm going to go on because we got a lot to cover today. I'm not going to tell that story. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning, Kevin. I'm learning. Thank you. <laughs> the people recognized him as the man outside the gate. And they recognized this is a notable miracle. We've never seen anything like this. And everybody's amazed. And the man is clinging to Peter and John going, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then he's jumping and glorifying God. Hallelujah, glory to God. Praise him. And he's running back to Peter and John. Thank you, thank you. And then he's running around the temple. And he, he, it's, it's like he's, he went church of God in Christ. <laughs> and the people are gathering around. And they're looking at the man. And then they're looking at Peter and John. And then they're looking at the man. And they're looking at Peter and John, and then they're looking at each other, and they're looking at Peter and John going, man, those guys are awesome. And those guys are powerful. And and Peter and John notice, "Uh uh-oh, they're looking at us. Oh, snap. Oh, no. They're misinterpreting the miracle. They think it means that we're awesome. And then Peter stands up, time to bear witness again. Time to bear witness. I'm a witness. Even the miracle was simply a witness. And he stands up and he says, why are you looking at us as though by our own power or godliness this man is made well? Why are you looking at us as though by our own power or godliness this man is made well? Why are you looking at us as if we made him well? No, 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 no. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his servant Jesus You know, the guy that you killed, nailed him to a tree. Well, God raised him up from the dead. You killed the holy and just one and put him in the grave, but God has raised him from the dead. And by the way, there's no salvation in any other name but by the name of Jesus. And they're preaching the gospel. He's bearing witness. Let me tell you what I've seen and heard. Jesus is alive. Now, I want you to understand, this is the first miracle that has transpired since Jesus was crucified. The religious leaders, when they crucified Jesus, they thought they had put an end to all of his shenanigans. He was dangerous because he was a healer. Because when he healed people, it was a direct and physical manifestation of the truth of who he was. We cannot convince people that he's a liar after he's healed them. And so they put him to death and they thought, now he's dead, that's it, it's over, it's done. And now, however long later, however long it's been, all of a sudden, somebody gets healed and these people are preaching Jesus. And the religious leaders are freaked out. They come and take Peter and John and the the apostles away. They put them in jail overnight. The next morning, they bring them out in front of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they say, by what name or by what power did you do this thing? Do you hear the question? How'd you do that? And Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, it's time to bear witness again. 
He says, whenever I feel the Holy Spirit on me, I know it's time to bear witness. And Peter says, if today we stand trial because of a good deed done to a helpless person. Do you see the wisdom in that? you see what Peter just did? you see what he did there? He said, okay, so if you're going to try us for a good deed done to a helpless person, by what name or power we did this, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that it was by the name of Jesus that this man is made whole. It is, in, it is through his name, yes, the faith that comes through his name, that this man has been made perfectly whole before you. And by the way, this is the stone that you builders rejected. The one that you killed, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. You can't escape him. His name is still doing the same thing that his presence did because he's still present, but he's present now in his witnesses. Now that you put him to death, he's unstoppable. And so they threatened them and they said, you are no longer to preach in this name. And Peter responds, you judge whether it's commendable before God to obey you or to obey God. For we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You see that? Witness. Yeah. We cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot help. You want to tell more people about Jesus? Get more filled up with the Holy Spirit because the more filled up with the Holy Spirit you are, the more you cannot help but speak about the things that you have both seen and heard. It is the encounter with the presence of God that empowers you to bear witness to the resurrection and glory of Jesus Christ. And the, the scripture says the Sanhedrin released them finding no way to punish them because they could not deny that a notable miracle had been worked through them. For the man upon whom the miracle was performed was more than 40 years old. And the whole crowd knew it. And, and verse 16 of chapter 4 is important. Can you put it up on the screen? And verse 16 says, when they realized that Peter and John were uneducated. Look, no, not 16, 19. Okay, never mind, 13. <laughs> No, that ain't it. It's, chap it's chapter 4. 4.13. Anyway, forget it. It says, oh, there we go. Yeah. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, parecia, the word, the word boldness in the Greek is parecia. Parecia is the ability to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it. Have the confidence to get up and say it and then sit down knowing that you said it. This is boldness. Boldness is knowing what to say, when to say it, how to say it. Having the confidence to say it. Say it and then sit down knowing that you've said it. Have you ever walked away from an encounter and went, dang, I should have said this. Dang, I should have said that. What you were missing was that. Parecia. Parecia. Boldness. Boldness is I know exactly what to say right now. I know exactly what not to say right now. I know exactly how to say what I need to say right now. I've got the confidence I need to say it. And once I say it, I'm going to sit down and go, I've said it. <laughs> That's boldness. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, who, by the way, were probably in their early 20s. We get the idea that these apostles were like 47 years old. 
No, they were teenagers when Jesus chose them, probably in their late teens. They're probably about 20, 21 years old right now, and they're standing before a group of men who are 50 and 60 years old, the seasoned religious leaders of the day, the religious elite, and they're standing there with boldness. They're not in there going, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, you know we, we, we just, you know, Jesus, because, you know, I think Jesus would want us to do this. That's not, there was no hesitation. Complete and total boldness. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, the word there in the Greek for uneducated is idiotes. It's where we get the word idiots. Idiotes. They perceived that they were idiotes. You're going to use that, huh? You're like, <laughs> Me on the freeway, somebody cut you off. Look at these idiotes coming right through. <laughs> Stop driving like an idiote. <laughs> what does it mean that they were uneducated? It means that they had not gone through the whole 30-year process that an average disciple went through before coming a Torah teacher, before becoming a Torah teacher. Torah teacher. <laughs> <laughs> They saw, how do they know what to say? How do they know how to say it? How do they know when to say it? Without going through all that we went through. Without studying what we, they haven't read the books we've read. They didn't spend the years that we spent. I've never seen a 21-year-old so bold, and not only bold, but wise. They know exactly what to say, how to say it, when to say it. They have the confidence to say it. And they can sit down and go, I said it. Wouldn't it be awesome to have that? Wouldn't it be awesome to live your life with that? Every place you walk into, you walk in with parecia, with boldness. I know what to say, how to say it, when to say it. I got the confidence to say it. And when I go home, I'm going to say, I said it. <laughs> if you got boldness, you never walk away from something and go, shouldn't have said that. Yeah. You never walk away and go, oh, dang, I should have said that. Why didn't I say that? I wish I could go back. How did they get that without studying letters? They marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Boldness comes from being with Jesus. And every time in the book of Acts someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, the result is boldness. Unswerving boldness. It means you not only know what to say, how to say it, when to say it, you have the confidence to say it, but you have the confidence to say it without any regard for the price that you will pay for having said it. There's a recklessness about those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's not a recklessness that is without wisdom. There's such thing as a recklessness that is without wisdom. But there is a wise recklessness. They know exactly when to be reckless, how reckless to be. They just stood right up in the faces of the Sanhedrin, of the greatest religious leaders of their day, and said, you guys killed the wrong guy. You actually killed the author of life. And guess what? You're going to hell for that unless you repent. That's some boldness. Dang. So they let them go. There's nothing they could do to them. They let them go. 
And what do they do? They threatened them, by the way. They made all kinds of threats. And as we go on, we're going to see that their threats were not empty. And they knew that their threats were not empty. It's a hard time to be the church. There's a lot of threats, a lot of danger. Now, here's what I might have done. I might have went back and called a congregational meeting. Everybody come together. All right, check it out. Listen, we're going to lay low for a while. <laughs> it's getting real funny around here. And it could be dangerous. So I think we need to, you know, we're going to go to an online church setting for a while. <laughs> now, they gathered the church. They reported to them all that the chief priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law had said. And then they had a prayer meeting. And listen to what they prayed. When they heard this, the church, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Meaning the whole church prayed. And what did they say? God, you're Lord. You're the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them who by the mouth of your servant David have said, and then they quoted Psalm chapter 2, why do the nations rage and the kings imagine a vain thing? The rulers of this world have set themselves and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord. And against, Are you putting the words up there so they can see what I'm getting wrong? <laughs> and against his Christ. Truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate were gathered together with all the people to do whatever your hand had determined that they would do. And he says, and now, Lord, behold their threats. I know that's King James Version, New King James. Look upon their threats or something like that. And grant to your servants, listen to this, and now, Lord, behold their threats and grant to your servants boldness. Yeah. Not invisibility. <laughs> Grant to your servants boldness. That is, when the, when the church heard about Peter and John's boldness, the church lifted up their voices and said, give us that same boldness. Give all of us that boldness by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders might be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. There was an earthquake. And it was a Holy Spirit earthquake. It had nothing to do with te tectonic plates. It had everything to do with the Holy Spirit. The place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. You see what happens in the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit started with a group of 120 disciples who were timid and afraid, huddled together in an up upper room with the doors and windows shut and locked, hoping not to be seen, hoping not to be noticed, afraid of what price they might pay for their association with Jesus of Nazareth. 
And then the Holy Spirit barges into that room and fills all 120 of them and turns them into maniacs. who are so full of boldness that when everything hits the fan, instead of taking a step back, they take a step forward. In the face of threats and opposition, they rise up and say, give us more boldness. It was a miracle that got them into trouble. They said, give us more miracles. It was a healing that brought them persecution. They said, bring on more miracles. Bring on more, but give us boldness. And when they had prayed, The place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. It started with one preacher. And it ended with 5,000. Because by the way, 3,000 were added to the church in Acts 2. Peter's sermon was interrupted by the religious leaders taking him to jail but even, though, even that half sermon that was interrupted by jail, 2,000 people believed because of it wow. and were added to the church. Now you've got 5,000 people who are full of the Holy Spirit and who leave the place speaking the word of God with boldness. Mm-hmm. That's a church. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it means to be the church. Yeah. That's what the church, that's our legacy, that's our heritage, that's our inheritance, that's the promise of God that lingers over every church. That's the church that God has been waiting to make every church to be. Gathering of individuals so full of the Holy Spirit that they've got boldness, that there's no more fear or timidity, and neither is there brashness or arrogance. But boldness is a combination of confidence and wisdom. It's wise confidence. It's the ability to know what to do and to have the courage to do it. And God visits this church with an outpouring of supernatural power. Why? Because in the face of opposition and of trial and intimidation... They pray. When the stuff hits the fan, they pray. When everything seems to go wrong, they pray. When the crisis emerges, they pray. That is, God always visits the praying church with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must make a decision as a church, what kind of church are we going to be? When the crisis hits, are we going to Google or are we going to pray? When the crisis hits, are we going to argue or are we going to pray? When the crisis hits, are we going to politic or are we going to pray? But if we make a decision, we're going to be a praying church that no matter what happens, we're going to come together, we're going to seek the face of God, and we're going to pray. The power of the Holy Spirit always visits and empowers the praying church. Let's pray. Lord, you are God. You are the creator of heaven and earth. You are Lord over the church, which is your body. 
And as we gather in this place today, we have one prayer. Give us boldness. Boldness is an inheritance that has largely been neglected. Because we have not realized that that inheritance belongs to us. Instead, we live our lives in silent desperation, in fear. We have such a sense of inferiority when we look at the scientific community, when we look at the realm of politics. Everything is set up to cause us to look upon ourselves. And we look upon our Christian faith as the most powerless thing in society. But Father, it's your desire to visit your church with an outpouring of your Holy Spirit that would make us bold witnesses of the resurrection and glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, so often we miss out on the boldness that you seek to give us because our hearts and minds are too focused on our own agenda. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom? At this time, are you going to restore my finances? At this time, are you going to restore my family? At this time, are you going to bless me? We're so focused on our agenda that we miss your agenda. And your agenda is always to give us power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us so that we might be your witnesses. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would put it in our hearts to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness that that would become the framework of our hearts, that that would become the priority of our imagination, the kingdom of God. Today I pray that you would set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, for we died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Holy Spirit, come. We need you. Give us boldness today. You said, say to those who are fearful hearted, do not be afraid, for behold, the Lord your God with a strong and mighty hand, he will come and save you. And Father, I pray today for every fearful heart and every anxious soul in this place, in the name of Jesus, that you would replace fear and that you would replace anxiety. You would replace them with boldness. I prayed in Jesus' name.